A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. An Erio's original... I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we'll be discussing the Oklahoma City bombing. Here's what you need to know. On the morning of April 19, 1995, an ex-Army soldier and security guard named Timothy McVeigh drove to the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. Inside the rented rider truck that he drove was a homemade bomb made out of agricultural fertilizer, diesel fuel, and other chemicals. Just mere blocks away, while still driving the truck, he lit two fuses set to go off in minutes. When he got to the building, he parked the truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center. McVeigh got out of the truck, locked the door, and calmly walked away. At 9.02 a.m., the bomb exploded. What happened next was something out of a war movie. The destruction was massive. A third of the building was destroyed by the explosion, flattening floors like pancakes and creating a 30-foot crater next to the building. More than 300 nearby buildings were damaged or destroyed, but the death toll was even more devastating. 168 people lost their lives that day, including 19 children. Approximately 850 people were also injured. At the time, it was the worst act of homegrown terrorism in U.S. history was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. If it seemed like war yesterday, the reinforcements showed up tonight. At the center of it all, of course, is the bombed-out shell of the federal office building, and in its shadow, the exhausted, who for a day and a half now have sifted through its debris and counted its dead and seen up close why they call it terror. And the media quickly reported the assumption that the attack had been orchestrated by Middle Eastern terrorists. These reports led to anti-Muslim hysteria across the nation. 
Shortly into the rescue and recovery, law enforcement agencies found the rear axle of the rider truck, which yielded the vehicle identity number. It was traced back to a rental agency in Junction City, Kansas, where employees were able to give sketch artists a description of the man who had rented the van. Agents were able to identify their first suspect after showing the composite drawing to a local hotel employee. There, they supplied the name from their records, Tim McVeigh. But law enforcement officials did not have to go far to find McVeigh. As it turns out, he was already in jail. Just 90 minutes after the bombing, an Oklahoma state trooper 80 miles north of Oklahoma City had pulled him over because the vehicle he was driving, the getaway car used after the bombing, was missing a license plate. During the stop, the state trooper noticed McVeigh had a concealed weapon and no permit for it. McVeigh was taken into custody. It was later discovered that McVeigh and his army friend, Terry Nichols, had stolen dynamite from a quarry in Kansas, used false names to purchase 4,800 pounds of ammonium nitrate, rented storage lockers, and robbed an Arkansas gun dealer at gunpoint, all in preparation for the bombing. The realization that Timothy McVeigh and his accomplice, Terry Nichols, had been behind the attacks, two military veterans, was a shock to the nation. McVeigh saw the bombing as a justifiable retaliation against the federal government and was quoted as saying that the murder of innocent people that day was, quote, collateral damage. On August 11, 1995, McVeigh and Nichols were indicted on murders and conspiracy charges. Two years later, Nichols was convicted on federal charges of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. McVeigh was convicted on 11 counts of murder, conspiracy, and using a weapon of mass destruction. He was sentenced to death. This morning, the United States of America carried out the severest sentence for the gravest of crimes. The victims of the Oklahoma City bombing have been given not vengeance, but justice. And one young man met the fate he chose for himself six years ago. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats. The blast killed 168 people, including 19 children, and injured approximately 850 people. The governor's office reported that 30 children were orphaned, 219 children lost at least one parent, 462 people were left homeless, and 7,000 people lost their workplace. According to the Oklahoma Historical Society, the final report estimated property damage to more than 300 buildings in a 48-square block area. The effects of the bomb could be felt and heard up to 55 miles away. The Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building housed offices for the Social Security Administration, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Secret Service, and the ATF, among other organizations. It also housed a Veterans Counseling Center, a Military Recruitment Office, and a Daycare Center. The building was later raised, and a park and memorial were built on the site. At the time of the explosion, McVeigh was 26 years old. The t-shirt McVeigh was wearing when he was arrested quoted Thomas Jefferson, the tree of liberty must from time to time be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. And our very, very special guest is Kathy Kinzora, host of History of the 90s podcast. Hi, Kathy. Hey, guys. You guys, I highly recommend Kathy's podcast, History of the 90s. There are so many things that you don't even realize happened in the 90s. For one, I was just listening to the online dating Mm -hmm. episode. Wait, did online dating start in the 90s? It did. (laughs) Match.com was founded in the 90s. That was the first official online dating service, and uh, it it started in the 90s. Wow. Imagine trying to get a date wearing baggy jeans and, like, puka (laughs) shells and stuff. That would be tough, don't you think, Amanda? Oh, uh, no, actually, I'm attracted to that. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, I'm just so curious, since you're a 90s expert, is there a specific disaster or tragedy other than the Oklahoma City bombing of the 90s that 
you could suggest that we cover eventually? Well, I see that you guys did Waco already. So that's a good one. And OJ Simpson trial obviously is a huge, you know, milestone, I guess, in the of the 90s. It it was in 95, same year as the Oklahoma City bombing. There were internationally, um, there was also the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And then I'm trying to think, um, there were a number, like other than Waco, there were um, Heaven's Gate cult. We just talked about that on the podcast, as well as uh, there was a cult in Japan that um, initiated a sarin gas attack on their subway system. So doomsday cults were really a big thing in the 90s because we were coming to the end of the 20th century. So it really heightened their game like they, you know, they stepped it up for sure. But I'm fascinated by this doomsday. You know, why was the 90s so uh, prone to these doomsday disasters? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of it, again, was because of the end of the 20th century was coming to, you know, coming ever close. But also the rise of the internet happening at the same time. So these cults were able to sort of expand their reach further than they could in the past when they would just have to stand on the corner and hand out pamphlets and, you know, try to attract people that way. But suddenly, like Heaven's Gate, they're considered the first cult of the internet because they they had a website. And funny thing, it's still up there if you want to look at it It, in all its glory, like heavensgate.com. And uh, there's still some people. Wow, they got the dot com. Yeah, and they are, and there's still people that will answer questions. If you send them a question, I sent them one, and they answered the same day. So it's uh, a bit creepy, but it's also kind of cool. But um, but I think that has a lot to do with it. So the rise of the internet, which plays into so many stories from the '90s, that really was, you know, even when we were talking about uh, online dating, it's because of the rise of the internet. So many things changed, and I think that's why the '90s is such a crazy time. It really was. And that kind of segues into the first person that I want to put up on the board Mm -hmm. was a big doomsday prepper himself, uh, Timothy McVeigh. Clearly, Mm -hmm. he was the the lead bomber in this case. Uh, A little background on McVeigh. According to History.com, while still in his teens, McVeigh, who was raised in western New York, acquired a penchant for guns and began honing survivalist skills that he believed would be necessary in the event of a Cold War showdown with the Soviet Union. During his adolescence in in upstate New York, Timothy McVeigh developed an enthusiasm for guns and a suspicion for guns governmental authority. He drew inspiration from the 1978 novel, The Turner Diaries, written by the white nationalist William Luther Pierce, which it depicts a right-wing insurrection against a tyrannical federal government seeking to deprive citizens of their right to bear arms. But this was only the beginning of McVeigh's anti-government stance. He graduated from high school in 86, and instead of attending college, he took odd jobs, one of which was a security guard. According to a Fox article, his former co-worker remembered McVeigh as looking like, quote, Rambo. So by 1988, he's enlisted in the army, and uh, that's where he proved to be a disciplined and meticulous soldier. While in the military, McVeigh befriended his fellow soldiers, uh, Terry Nichols, who we'll talk about later. You know, he's decorated with several medals for his military service, but he does not qualify for the special forces program, uh, the Green Berets. After his discharge in 91, he begins frequenting gun shows and develops a stronger suspicion of the U.S. government. At the time, the American military was downsizing after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Another result of the end of the Cold War was that McVeigh shifted his ideology from a hatred of foreign communist governments to a suspicion of the U.S. federal government, especially at its uh, new leader, Bill Clinton, who was elected in 92 and had successfully campaigned for the presidency on a platform of gun control. So McVeigh definitely goes on the board. Clearly, this guy's pretty paranoid. And you mentioned that he uh, read the Turner Diaries, which I'm sure you're going to get to more, but that would definitely go up on the board because I'm not sure when he started to get into the Turner Diaries, but I think it factored heavily into, you know, this belief that he had that the government um, was corrupt and and trying to take away his rights. And it even depicts a, a bombing, a truck bombing of a government building in the Turner Diaries. So I think that was a big influence on him. Yeah, I think let's, you know, let's put the Turner Diaries right up on the board. Uh, I think because I do think he was influenced by it at a, at a pretty early age. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, I, I actually had never heard of the Turner Diaries before this. Um, but the Turner Diaries is a, a 78 novel novel by William Luther Pierce, and it's published um, uh, under the pseudonym Andrew McDonald. And it depicts a violent revolution in the U.S., which leads to the overthrow of the federal government, a nuclear war, and ultimately a race war, which leads to a systematic extermination of non-whites. All groups opposed by the uh, uh, opposed by the novel's protagonist, Earl Turner, including uh, Jews, non-whites, liberal actors, and politicians, are exterminated. He was obsessed with that book, so he he carried it around with him. He read it a number of times, handed it out to people, ripped out pages. I think he had a copy of it on him when he was arrested. So it was a you know a big factor in I think in his decision making. And wasn't it, didn't he use it as a blueprint? Like there was a similar bombing that mm-hmm. he basically copied, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what you were saying, yeah. Kathy, right? There was yeah. a... Yeah, in the book, there's a truck bombing of a government building. So, you know, you, you can't say for sure that's where he got the idea because it's not like it's a unique idea, but it's certainly, you know, a book that he was very familiar with. So, you know, it can't be just a coincidence. Should we just put I- books up on the board? <laughs> Or, or maybe like a lack of a good book club. Like if he had maybe uh, like like read, you know, I guess Brené Brown wasn't around back then, but I don't know. Just, or Oprah. Like, yeah, get oh, your God, hands Oprah's on book Oprah's book, book list. <laughs> right? There's something so creepy about um, the fact that it's fiction too. It's like a fiction narrative about, which basically it's about like a racist Rambo, which is so powerful and disturbing. And that there's people buying it and reading it. That's what I find disturbing. Well, the concept of this like race war thing was not, uh, you know, it was also it it was happening before 78 when the book was written. So like Manson really thrived on this whole idea. And I'm sure he wasn't the person to come up with it. (laughs) It feels like it was brewing in the country for a while. You know, maybe the 60s are to blame. When when would Timothy McVeigh have been born? I, I I don't know that off the top of my head, but perhaps he was born in the sixties. Well, he was twenty six in ninety five. Yeah, sixty eight. Yeah, born. then he definitely was. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So definitely the sixties are to blame. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I love how direct you are, Kathy. I just love your decisiveness. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting to it. <laughs> Sorry, you be- I'm very efficient. You I'm really efficient. belong in this squad. Um, I also want to put up on the board. Not not just the book, the Turner Diaries, but the author, William Luther Pierce, who just mm. is a total, seems like a total complete scumbag. And because the Turner Diaries are also, like, people have referenced that as as inspiration for other horrific acts of uh, hate crimes. So I just think the guy mm-hmm. himself should be on the board as well. Put him up. <laughs> um, I also think we should put up Doomsday Prepping just, uh, you know, in itself, the concept. And I want to... You know, I, I've been watching Alone. Amanda and Chris and I are huge fans of this uh, TV show, Alone. I, I don't know if you've seen. Same. Okay, great. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, you know, yes. we are so sympathetical. Come on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all huge Alone fans, and that's very different. Like those are survival. They keep saying he's a survivalist. That to me is a survivalist right. skill. Like being, you know, uh, able to survive. It's a fine line between a survivalist and. Someone like Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because survivalists um, have a lot of great skills. And I think we learned during COVID <laughs> that we may want to all prep a little bit better for, you know, certain situations. But um, the the type of doomsday prepper that you're talking about is someone more like um, that plays into this story is uh, Randy Weaver, who was um, the gentleman at Ruby Ridge. I don't know if you were going to get into that, but he's a different kind of doomsday prepper. Like, it's almost like you're prepping for the government to come take over, whereas survivalists are prepping for maybe a man-made or environmental disasters, which... Not a bad idea in this day and <laughs> Turns age, out. Right? <laughs> it turns out or it's like not a bad ad- idea. Or, so. an, or an adventurous camping trip. Like survivalists. <laughs> right, just exactly. Like, you know what? It's, I like to be alone. Sometimes. Or a hike. <laughs> exactly. A hike gone wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, and, and the, the uh, well, I, I hear from this Fox article, 
Um, McVeigh developed a fascination for the ideology of paramilitary groups whose numbers were growing throughout the United States. In addition to gun magazines like Soldier of Fortune and Guns, Guns and Ammo, Vic- McVeigh started reading newsletters like that of the overtly anti-Semitic Liberty Lobby, Christian Identity, uh, the pa- uh, sorry, and Christian Identities, The Patriot Report. So... There seems to be some correlation here with these doomsday preppers and these paramilitary groups. Um, right. Yeah, they they think they think the government's after their guns and their property, and they are they like you're saying. I think the the um, purest incantation of is that guy Randy Weaver, who. Um, well, let's talk about Randy Weaver. Both McVeigh and Nichols, who we still haven't talked about, but we'll get to him, uh, were radicalized by the events of the August 92 shootout at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. U.S. Marshals attempted to apprehend a man named Randy we- Weaver at his family's remote hillside cabin in northern Idaho. Weaver, who had resisted efforts by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, to force him to inform on the white supremacist group Aryan Nations, hadn't shown up for his trial on weapons charges. An initial exchange of fire left Weaver's 14-year-old son and a U.S. Marshal dead. Federal authorities then laid siege to Weaver's cabin for 11 days, during which an FBI sniper was wounded. Sorry, an FBI sniper wounded Weaver and a family friend, Kevin Harris, and killed Weaver's wife, Vicky. So there's a standoff for 11 days. I guess the ATF was trying to get information on... It wasn't even Randy Weaver that they wanted. They were just using this guy, Randy Weaver, to get the information on this Aryan nation uh, group. And it just turned out that Randy Weaver was a, a, a kind of like a doomsday prepper. Yeah, and he was trying to avoid gun charges. So he, you know, he moved his family to this remote location, as you said. And I think because the idea that gun charges and the right to bear arms factors in really heavily with the, you know, the doomsday preppers and the right-wing militias that are all tied into this group, that he became a symbol of, of you know, overreach by the government. He should be entitled to have weapons. He shouldn't have been charged in the first place, which forced him to move out there, which forced them to track him there. So I think that's the direct line to to Randy Weaver and and then to Waco and to Timothy McVeigh. Like, I think you can, it's a direct link from the, you know, from one to the other. And you can even throw in the uh, bombing at uh, the Atlanta Olympics, which is what I was thinking of earlier when you're talking about big disasters from the 90s. But Eric Rudolph, the, the person who was ultimately responsible for that, was also of that ilk. Like, he was also a doomsday prepper who lived out in the woods for, you know, a number of years um, after the Atlanta bombing. Yeah, a lot of like, I guess what you can call them homegrown terrorism is happening at this time. I wonder what that is. Kathy, as a as an expert of the 90s, culturally, like what was going on with these young white men who were doing this? It's hard to know other than that the idea that it was only in the 90s, I think is wrong. You shouldn't think that. We did hear more about it in the 90s, but it still exists today that there's still these groups, but the attention was really taken away from them after 9-11. All of, you know, the U.S. government's resources and, you know, um, investigators were put into international terrorism as opposed to homegrown terrorism, and uh, they still exist. It's still happening. There still are militia groups. There still are, um, you know, racist organizations, as we saw in North Carolina, um, or in Charlotte, um, Charlottesville. Sorry, is that I yes. think Charlottesville, where the yeah, where the um, where the the protester um, was killed. I guess a couple of summers ago. So it, it still does exist, but it seemed more prevalent in the '90s because we were hearing more about it. it. But certainly, there was something else going on, and it seemed to be this, you know, this kind of building effect from um, from Ruby Ridge to Waco to Oklahoma. It just seemed to keep building one on top of the other. He McVeigh actually is believed to have picked April nineteenth as the day of the bombing because it was the anniversary of 
1993 Waco raid and the opening shot of the Revolutionary War in Concord and Lexington in 1775. Mm. So there was definite significance uh, on the date, you know, for him. While we're in the subject, I think we need to talk about these right-wing extremist paramilitary anti-government groups. Andrew Cohen, fellow at Brennan Center, the right-wing extremists who embraced and nurtured McVeigh and Nichols and who in turn were inspired by them had risen up during the Clinton presidency, enraged by the siege at Waco. They had hoped that an act of domestic terrorism would spawn some sort of armed revolution. Now, McVeigh wrote letters to the Lockport Union Sun and a journal in February and March of 1992. The first of these letters bewailed rising crime, cataclysmic taxes, politicians serving only themselves, and the disappearance of the American dream. Uh, Substitute it with people struggling just to buy next week's groceries. Just as communism failed, he said, democracy seems to be headed down the same road. No one is seeing the big picture. America is in decline. He closed by saying, do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. Now, in the summer of 1992, McVeigh made his first extended visit to Terry Nichols' house in northern northeast Michigan, uh, a northeast Michigan farm owned by Nichols' brothers. From early 1993 until shortly before the bombing, McVeigh moved between Kingman, Arizona and northeast Michigan, two centers of burgeoning interest in paramilitary anti-government organizations. Now, this is an interesting tidbit, but McVeigh dropped out of the NRA in 1994, saying that the group was soft on defending assault weapons. So the NRA was too soft for him. Yeah, and I think uh, Terry Nichols, or his brother, or both, were kicked out of the Michigan militia because they were too radical for the Michigan militia. So (laughs) these are guys at the edge of extreme. Do we dare put the Second Amendment on the board? (laughs) (laughs) Kathy's not going to touch what, it. This might be our most controversial As a episode, Canadian, yeah. I'm stepping back from that issue. I'll leave that one for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> That's yours, you guys. That's fair. on that one. <laughs> no. It causes a lot of problems. I'm just going to say it's that. It's true. The modern interpretation of the Second Amendment is causing all sorts of problems. There Wasn't there a law that passed, like... Um, recreational firearms that really got McVeigh fired up uh, about like a certain weapons bans that restricted certain um, certain kinds of guns that he was really yeah I'm not sure probably sounds right but yeah I don't know yeah for the fact checker (laughs) sounds right up his alley yeah that's me shouldn't shouldn't have brought it up if I didn't want to have to go and dig in for it okay I'll get on it (laughs) We definitely have to put white supremacy up on the board. He was, you know, involved in those groups. And if you ask a white supremacist, too, uh, because there's uh, apparently some news, uh, Buffalo News interviewed Horace Scott Lacey, who distributed white counterpoint, which I guess is white supremacist uh, uh, reading. And... uh, he he said that he thought McVeigh was a man of action, but in my opinion, he wasn't he wasn't racist or a white nationalist. Technically, he shared some of the views, but he wasn't a diehard racist. He wasn't he was more anti-government. So um, McVeigh wasn't racist enough for white white supremacists. Well, at least there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we have to talk about Terry Nichols. We cannot talk about him. He's a huge part of this case. He is born in 1955 in Michigan, and he meets McVeigh during his short enlistment in the Army in 1988. The two become friends due to their shared political beliefs system. Um, They have an interest in guns and uh, survivalist movement. Nichols was 15 years older than McVeigh, and he had a child uh, with an ex-wife and two more children with his current wife at the time, who was from the Philippines and whom he had met through a mail-order bride service. Um, it's, It's believed that Nichols helped McVeigh gather the supplies for the bomb and stored them, and he also helped make the bomb and set up the van. Now, toward the end, they think that he might have had second thoughts 
But uh, as he told investigators, McVeigh threatened to kill him if he backed out. On the day of the bombing, this is according to Britannica.com, Nichols was hundreds of miles away at home, so he wasn't there. The prosecution suggested that Nichols drove McVeigh from Junction City, Oklahoma, to Oklahoma City on April 16 uh, to drop off the getaway car. His former wife, Lana Padilla, testified that Nichols had left a package with her to open in the event of his death while he was in the Philippines one time. In the package, she found a letter written to McVeigh in which Nichols urged McVeigh to, quote, go for it. Nichols' anti-government views developed and grew over the years. Nichols spent most of his adult life in uh, Lapeer and Sanilac County areas of Michigan, where mistrust and resentment of the federal government was common, especially after bank repossessions of many farms in the 1980s. So he was definitely radicalized. Nichols was radicalized. And his friendship with McVeigh was, a, I guess you could call him uh, an enabler. No, I mean, I, I would say more than an enabler, really. He was an active participant until an accomplice, until toward the end where he realized, I think, that he was actually going to do it. I, I don't know. But also, um, Nichols' brother was also, uh, James Nichols is the farm that they were you know, coming up with this plan and and uh, practicing, I think, detonating bombs. So he was indicted, but the charges were dismissed. But I mean, you would think he plays a role in it as well as there were a couple other people in his life, in t- um, McVeigh's life, that knew what he was up to or what he was planning to do. The uh, the 40-years, um, Michael and his wife, and then even McVeigh's sister, Jennifer McVeigh, she, um, you know, he didn't say specifically, but he had this anger that she was well aware of against the FBI. And he was kept saying something big was planned. He had left documents on her computer um, to give to the ATF if something big happened. So, you know, you wonder how much do these people play a part in the responsibility if someone had have stepped up and said something? I think you're absolutely right. And I think we can call them those who didn't tattletale. There you go. Tattletale? <laughs> mm. um, because I think there's a there were a lot of people like you said it wasn't just um, uh, Nichols who didn't you know in the last minute backed out and then didn't say anything like you said there was Michael Fortier which we should actually put him up because he's the the most um, uh, repulsive of the ones <laughs> who didn't tell <laughs> because he actually so he's also a friend uh, from the army. He meets McVeigh in the army and then he leaves and they keep in touch. He's actually, McVeigh is the best man at Fortier's wedding. So they had a strong connection and, uh, he actually went with McVeigh to scout the building, but then he dropped out. And later he was actually sentenced to 12 years in prison for failing to warn authorities. And he, the, the reason he got a more lenient sentence was because he agreed to be the the key, the star witness for the prosecution. Right. right. I think he was put in the witness <laughs> protection program, too. Yes. I was just going to say, I believe that him and his wife and kids are in the witness protection program. So let's put 40A up there. And then the group of the other like side characters who didn't tattletale. I wanted to throw up the Gulf War and the military. Those were two key components to McVeigh's uh, radicalization, I guess. He was a decorated sergeant. I, I believe he, he, he was a sergeant. It's in the Gulf War that he becomes even more disillusioned with the U.S. government. He apparently thought the war was too easy and essentially it wasn't a fair fight. And that the Iraqis didn't really stand a chance against the weaponry and the machinery of the U.S., and it's also the his trying to get into the Green Berets and failing was a huge factor. Apparently, he washed out after the first day, so he didn't stand a chance. They had given him these 45-pound backpacks and told them to march without a destination. And he essentially just, he was not physically ready to do this, this kind of thing. In all fairness, I don't like tasks without... Um, purpose. Clear objectives. 
So, but yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there is no, there is no justifying ending lives like this. And there's no like rationalization of that. Um, and, but then when you go to war, you know, you, you expect citizens to carry the out these heinous acts at in the same breath, the contradiction inherent in America and the American military force is, you know, so blatant. And, and if you tilt it in the, just the right way, you can see how somebody like that, like Timothy McVeigh, could look at both of these events and not draw a distinction between the two. And, you know, I, I think of that with as well as uh, sports figures as well as military people in the military. You expect them to be vicious animals when they're overseas. When they come home, we're surprised when they can't, you know, adapt into the world and and have difficulties. But uh, another 90s story I, I think of often is Mike Tyson who became a convicted rapist and um, was in trouble with the law numerous times. But we want him to go into the ring and beat the crap out of someone. And then we're surprised when he acts a different way, you know, or the same way in public. So it's sometimes you feel like you you um, reap what you sow. And uh, maybe with uh, Timothy McVeigh, you're I think you're onto something there with the idea of uh, putting the Gulf War up on the board. And now to expound on this subject, let's speak with Dr. Kathleen Ballou, assistant professor of U.S. history at University of Chicago and author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. How how did the Gulf War affect the early 90s period in U.S. history? Great question. Complex question. Um, The Gulf War had a lot of ramifications going in a lot of different directions. Um, But I think, you know, one of the clearest ways to understand it is that it is a war. Um, it was a short war. It's one that people thought of as restaging the Vietnam War and ending what people called Vietnam Syndrome or the idea that America felt emasculated and disempowered by the loss of the Vietnam War and that we somehow needed to collectively fight and win another war in order to sort of clear that legacy. Um, but the... I think the more important impact for understanding the Oklahoma City bombing is that it created another moment of aftermath of warfare. If you look at uh, Klan and white power activity across the, the whole arc of American history, what is really significant is that the surges in that activity align more consistently with the aftermath of warfare than they do with poverty, anti-immigration violence, um, civil rights gains, and any other number of measures that people have often understood as being related to Klan activity. What we see instead is that every time there is a war, there is an aftermath effect. Now, what's really interesting is we might think that that has to do with simply the return of veterans from combat. It turns out that that impact is across ages, across gender, across people who did and did not serve, all of us become more violent in the aftermath of warfare. So you see that percolating across American society in the 1990s. Listen to our full interview with Dr. Ballou on Thursday's episode of The Aftermath. Now back to our discussion. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more 
Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Who's to blame for the Oklahoma City bombing? Timothy McVeigh, Turner of Diaries, and William Luther Pierce. The 1960s, Doomsday Preppers, Ruby Ridge and Waco, and the bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. Right-wing extremist groups, the Second Amendment, white supremacy, Terry Nichols and James Nichols, those who didn't tattletale. <laughs> That's Michael the name Fortier. of Rebecca's memoir. <laughs> <laughs> and it's her with one hand on a hip and one hand wagging a finger in the air. Those are the um, book of poems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she gives them to. Uh, yeah, to be Andrew careful. Lo- Andrew Lloyd Webber, he makes a musical album. <laughs> uh, all right, then the Gulf War and the military. I'm so glad you're with us today, Kathy, because this is going to be a hard one. Yeah, this is. <laughs> I don't even know what's the first one. You, I, mean, I, mean, I was hoping the bad, uh, maybe books, lack of book clubs would be on here because uh, then we could just strike that one off first. <laughs> well, I think the 1960s well, seems like a pretty easy target. Sorry, <laughs> Kathy, did I did I uh, step on you? No, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think there was a lot of good people born in the 60s. We can't just wipe out a whole decade because of one guy. So <laughs> I like the way you think. Big picture. Yeah. I would say we could maybe take off white supremacy just because the the white supremacists were saying he wasn't racist enough. Right. It, it was, it went yeah. beyond uh, racism, I guess, for, for McVeigh. It wasn't so mm-hmm. much about that. I think maybe doomsday preppers don't necessarily need to be there. It was more, I would say it was more the right wing extremist groups, which you, we should separate the two because like you're saying, the people on alone, the survivalists love them. That's right. Don't want to paint them with the same brush. So, okay. So we still have Timothy McVeigh, the Turner Diaries, uh, Ruby Ridge, Waco, all those things. Um, Second Amendment, not the Atlanta Olympics because they happened after. Okay, so, okay. So, yes, they happened after. So hmm. Waco and uh, Ruby. Oh, Ridge. They, they happened after. Okay. Um, yes. Do we think he would have been as ra- radicalized if he had not gone to war? Possibly, or did did he have some kind of brain injury? You never know. Yeah, he also met him. He met Michael Fortier and Terry Nichols at in the army. So I don't think we can take it off. I guess we can take the Turner Diaries off. Oh God. Oh, I would leave them. Me too. Listen, if we're talking about causation here i almost like the turner diaries better than like ruby ridge and waco on on waco though uh, you probably saw this in your research mcveigh traveled to waco during the siege and sat outside and there's a documentary that shows him sitting on his car handing out bumper stickers and pamphlets about his beliefs yeah i did see that so creepy and and the fact that he like watched every single night i read that he would watch every single night the nightly news because they would cover it Right. I see Waco and Ruby Ridge more as logs thrown on an already burning fire. Mm. Because, yeah, yeah he, he used them as justification, but 
the fire was already going. That's we true. also just this will make us feel a little bit better. We did send David Koresh to jail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, good. Um, now I'm going to say we could, I know I put this up, but the second amendment, I think maybe can come I off. I think at so this too. Point. It's been there long enough. Yeah. Are you like some sort of gun nut, Rebecca? Cause you're, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly, I need to learn more about this whole Second Amendment. Um, you know, it's the right to bear arms. I, I understand what it is. <laughs> I understand what it is. Um, I <laughs> and I'm not. Is it so annoying li- living with a fact checker? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not like a gunhead over here. I'm not like I, I don't love guns. I'm just. I think it's more complicated than than just like pro gun, anti gun. I'm gonna say those who. I want to take off those who didn't tattletale and. And here's why. I don't know that anybody was capable of stopping him. Even the person who tried to stop him, he threatened to kill. I have to disagree with that because if somebody had said, hey, I think this guy's up to something, FBI agents would have been, you know, tailing, like like following him. There, there's no way he could have gotten that far and and you know the 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 body count like the the so many people died and 19 children died like that is just devastating and if there's anything that you can do and and these people knew where he was planning to blow up the gun the 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 van so you, you they had to have known that the that the death toll would have been massive i mean he he's planning to to, to blow up a van in a, in a government building okay. on, on a work day. <laughs> I mean, I, they're looking really nice for the big slap. Yeah. To me. But then what about the Turner Diaries? Because they look real nice for the big slap, too. But the Turner Diaries is so is um, I think actually now is the time we could possibly take Turner Diaries off because that's so theoretical. It's a work of fiction. And. And these people, actually, the non-tattletellers, like they had concrete information, people's lives were at stake, and they sat on that. And that's True. just so evil. It, yeah, I, I agree with it's that. It's like blaming rock music or heavy metal music for someone committing a crime. That's it's true. Yeah. Right. A slippery slope, as yeah, they say. Yeah, I agree. I also think we can take the Gulf War and the military out, actually, because there are a lot of people who have served our country and they're not blowing up buildings. There are, there are people who come out of who came out of the military and who come out of Gulf, the Gulf War who didn't yeah. commit these atrocities. Exactly. I think I'm leaning towards sending McVeigh to jail and putting 40A and Nichols, the Nichols brothers, all under those who didn't tattletale. Yeah, so are we wanting to take right-wing extremist groups off? What do you think, Kathy? (laughs) (laughs) Just put it on me. Um, So when we're talking about the right-wing extremist groups, we're talking about the militia groups of the 90s. Yeah, I would leave them up there. Okay. I think it's a big part of what happened, and it uh, is connected in a way that I think we can't ignore. I, I see your point, Kathy. Now I'm leaning toward the, the right wing, giving right wing uh, extremist groups, militia groups, the slap. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm angry at those who didn't tattletale, and I will write them angry letters. Well, we do occasionally use the backhand. So the backhand is, is something we don't use a lot, but occasionally when there's somebody else who deserves a slap... Right, Amanda? We like to yeah. sort of, we go slap across the face with one. Yeah. And we use a forehand with one group right. of people, and then we use a backhand with another. So I don't know if this is a case where you want to use that. Yeah, and what I like about a backhand is if you're wearing your engagement ring or, or something like that, it really hurts on the backhand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I think it's settled for me. I think we can call it. Right-wing extremist groups slash militia groups. You're getting the big slap. Those who didn't tattletale, you're getting the backhand. Timothy McVeigh, you're going to the alarmist jail. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us get down to the bottom of who's to blame for the Oklahoma City bombing. Everyone, please check out Kathy's podcast. 
uh, history of the 90s. You will not be disappointed. Guys, it was really great to hang out with you for a bit and love your show. Aw, thank you, Kathy. After the Oklahoma City bombing, on June 11, 2001, McVeigh, at age 33, died by lethal injection at a U.S. penitentiary in Indiana. He was the first federal prisoner to be put to death since 1963. On May 26, 2004, Nichols was found guilty in Oklahoma State Court on 161 counts of murder. The jury spent five hours deliberating before announcing the verdict. District Judge Stephen Taylor sentenced Nichols to 161 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. The bombing was the nation's first single act of domestic terrorism, superseded in numbers of dead only by the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, in New York City. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing one of the biggest rivalries of all time, the Kanye West-Taylor Swift feud. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.